welcome back to Choose That Dobses. Thank you as always for getting in touch. Please do continue to do so and share your thoughts and feelings. Best place to do it, comment section below. But if you've got a longer story, maybe with some photos, please do send an email over to hi at Tuesday at dobs.com. And I also try and share as many pics as I can throughout the week on Instagram account, Tuesday underscore at underscore Dobbs. I begin with classic adventures. Freddie, we don't seem to see as many oily jeans and oil, or sorry, and old jacket bikers about. It fascinates me why these things change. Is it because modern bikes don't need the same kind of home maintenance? Or is it because the biker weekend rallies have faded a bit? Down south in the UK, there often used to be weekend events organised and tied to a patch club with bands and all that good stuff. But you only seem to see them up north now. This is a really good point. When I got into biking, I got into biking and I was inspired by a few of the, the more old school bikers. The bikers that grew up in this era when you had these biker rallies and they'd head off on a Friday or Saturday to these huge biker rallies and you'd be drinking and messing about on bikes and things like that. But I don't hear as much of that kind of stuff. So I would love to hear, and I hope you don't mind me calling you this, I'd love to hear from some old school bikers about any biker rallies you've been on in the past. If you've got any pictures to share or any stories to share, please do let me know. And if you'd like to be anonymous, in case the stories were a bit too risque, just say, please keep me anonymous and I'll do so. And also, anyone in recent times who still goes to these biker rallies, do these biker rallies still exist? And if you've got some stories, some photos, some things to share, please, please do share them with me and I'll share all of the stories. You can send me an email if you'd like to be anonymous as well. Hi at choosedetdobs.com. I continue. Okay a way for manufacturers to save money and keep their inventory at a bare minimum. An insider's perspective. Hi, Freddie. With reference to last week's podcast and the discussion about parts supply in which particular, in which, sorry, particular seems to be affecting Triumph. I've worked in the motor trade my whole life. That is 20 years now. Most recently as a dealer principal at a Scania truck dealership. For bikes and cars, most dealerships will carry a very small amount of parts, physical, on the shelf at the location. Some more will usually be held by the manufacturer themselves, but in the last 10 years this has reduced dramatically as most have moved to the just-in-time principle where they order the part once they get very low and new ones arrive just in time to restock the shelf or the dealers. Now this was good for cash flow as dealers didn't have large parts sitting on the shelf waiting to be sold. And of course this worked fine while the world wasn't in a COVID pandemic. And then again, many of us didn't realize how much the motor trade infrastructure was made in Ukraine, chips and lots more. It turns out some manufacturers have been able to adapt faster than others and either change suppliers or bring on multiple new ones to keep up with demand. Now, I suggest maybe that's what's happened with Triumph. The areas of the world it gets its parts from may have been more affected than, other, than others. 
In trucks, just to an end, as a franchise truck dealership, we are contracted to keep one million pounds in physical stock, whilst almost everything else for all current and previous models goes back at least 15 years. See, this is, this is what really needs to happen in biking. I continue. Goes back at least 15 years. Is kept in the UK at a central hub available for next day delivery. Truck manufacturers have to do this as trucks earn companies a living and if they can't keep them on the road due to parts supply issues, no one would ever buy that truck again. Matt from Norwich. Great insight, Matt. Thank you. This is one of my favorite conversations and it always generates a huge amount of polarizing input and argument and discussion. How important, and I'm, I do like to revisit every so often to share your, your updated thoughts and opinions on this. How important is it where something is built? From Sam, this is with regards to last week when I said I'm glad that Norton are now occupying the higher end of the market because look, they're made in the UK. So in reality, they are probably always going to have to be more expensive than some other brands not made in the UK and they don't have the economies of scale. And because there isn't much in the market from British brands occupying that high end of the market, I'm more than happy that Norton are there. And I will pay a premium if something is made in the country of origin just because it has a little extra weight to it, at least in my eyes. Here are some of your thoughts. From Sam, Freddie Howe are Norton, an Indian-owned company, more British than Triumph, a British-owned company. Triumph now turn out more bikes at Hinkley than Norton will ever do on their production lines. £18,000 with some extras for what is, most reviewers consider to be, a quite unrefined bike. I can't deny it looks gorgeous, but there has to be some quality and value at that price. Sam, that's a perfectly fair argument, the first bit. What's more British? Triumph, a British-owned company, but they build their bikes in Thailand. I think it's probably in reality 95-90% of their bikes built in Thailand, with 5 5 to 10% built in the UK, but it's British-owned. What's more British, that or Norton, an Indian-owned company, but they build the bikes in the UK. Oliver continues, the loyalty to these so-called British products, that's Triumph, Norton and Land Rover, is mystifying. I suppose it's the romance. But really, have they ever made a reliable vehicle? They take the mickey out of their customers. Oliver, I had to do something here. Because as everyone will know, I'm a big Land Rover fan, but it's, it's a, a poorly kept secret at best. In reality, everyone knows about it. Land Rovers make the least reliable cars you could ever dream of. Look at any stat, any report of the least reliable cars on the roads and the chances are Land Rover will occupy most spots. They are ferociously unreliable vehicles. I wanted to back this up just for a bit of fun. It's not biking related, but I find it easier to find stats for this on cars over bikes. 
What car? 2022 survey, reliability for vehicles up to five years old. Out of the 15 least reliable vehicles in the UK in 2022, six of the 15 were British, Land Rover or Jaguar, so from the JLR group. That is quite close to half of the top 15 least reliable vehicles, and that is all vehicles across the entire spectrum, all four-wheeled vehicles, were from the JLR, the Jaguar Land Rover group. What makes this even more incredible is that there are far, far more brands making far more vehicles than JLR. JLR is relatively fairly tiny, yet they occupy almost 50%. And you name it, the brand or the model of Land Rover will be there, from Discoveries to Range Rovers and everything in between. What's also quite interesting, occupying five of the top 15 spots, the German cars. I think the time is now gone where the German marks are, or go hand in hand with reliability. You don't say BMW now and think reliability. You say it's probably well built, well built, but with regards to reliability, there are too many electronics and BMW now have a fairly ropey, I would say, reputation for reliability as well, although I'll admit it's nowhere near Jaguar Land Rovers. The interesting thing also, almost all of these cars, bar possibly two, are, are big tech-laden cars, i.e. technology will always go wrong. If you put something on a car or motorbike, the chances are it will go wrong. Add something to it tech-wise, and it may sound lovely initially, but it's just something else to go wrong. I move on. The Masked Avenger. This is carrying on with the topic. Freddie, the company that uses the Norton name may claim that their machines are all British, but I would be surprised if all parts are British-made. I reckon Norton should prove themselves as a reliable, sustainable proposition before they start expecting punters to stump up that kind of bunts. I can't take any motorcycle company that flogs trendy, casual, non-biking clothing seriously. Norton need to decide if they're catering for proper bikers or fashion-conscious, skinny latte, cafe, posh boys with more money than sense. Now, there's a direct reply to this. David replies to the Masked Avenger, I've actually made some parts for Norton in Ipswich this year. See, it does work. You make in the UK and that starts spreading out to different suppliers, different manufacturers on a local level. What I would say about this with regards to, to the wealthier bikers in my, or from my point of view, it doesn't make them less of a biker. And actually, I would say that biking has always gone hand in hand with fashion, whether we like to admit it or not. You look at the mods, the rockers, the, what's the name of that film? The wild one, Marlon Brando. Fashion and biking have always gone hand in hand, bar a little period from let's say the beginning of the 80s up until maybe the maybe 2010 for example so that period of about 30 years or so when people started moving into the the adventure touring style 
style gear where you wear the Gore-Tex or, or that kind of stuff, whatever you call it. The, the suits like you're doing the, the long way round. You've got that kind of gear and you've got the, the sports bike full leathers. That period maybe wasn't the most stylish, but save that 30 year period from 1980 to 2010, biking's always been incredibly fashion conscious. So I would say it's always gone hand in hand. Maybe it's just coming back now more so than it has been over the past or the previous 30 years or so. I'm moving on. Final point here, final point. One quick question, this is from one man or one man his dub. Quick question, if a Ferrari was made in India, would you buy one? Yeah, that's always a really good question. Same, if a Rolex was made in China, would you buy one? I would say the same with Harley Davidson. If Harley Davidson was made somewhere else, would I buy a Harley? But I know that Harley Davidson now make in Thailand as well, and I think a good chunk of Harleys, tell me if I'm wrong, that are sold in Europe are actually made in Thailand. I welcome anyone to share anything different with me there. If I had the choice and I were buying a Harley Davidson for sake of argument, yes, if I could pick, I probably would pick for it to be made in the US because it's just such an iconic American brand. I would quite like to know it's made in the US. I would say as one final point from my side here, with regards to Norton and where it's made, what's that saying? Don't let the, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. So don't let the fact that Norton may not have all of its parts made in the UK, don't let that be a detrimental factor in the fact that what they're doing is extremely good. They are producing bikes in the UK and that should be celebrated. So don't let any of the negative parts, whether it's a negative, I don't think it is. For example, if the brakes are made in another country, don't let that tarnish the opinion and the fact that Norton are making bikes in the UK. And that fact should be celebrated, I think. I'm moving on to JK3. Ah, okay, I've done some research on this. Freddie, I live in London, in a relatively nice area, in a house, but I have no garage. I have a ground anchor fitted on my drive and secure both bikes with chains. Bimoto, the insurance company, could not find anyone to insure my bikes as they were not garaged. It seems to me like in London you will struggle to get insurance on a decent bike that isn't garaged, and I had nine years no claims bonus. JK3, I had a look at this. So, there were two or three people saying exactly this, that they actually can't get the bikes insured in London. So I thought, what on earth? What on earth is going on here? So I went on to com compare the market with my Bonneville. I put my address as Southeast London. I said that my Bonneville was garaged and I live in Southeast London. Fairly dangerous area because it's where I used to live. So there's a decent amount of bike crime there. For a garaged bike, my Bonneville, per year, it would be £93 a year to insure my Bonneville if it were in a garage. Now, if it were on a driveway, 
that changes to £127 a year insurance. Nowhere near as much a jump as I thought. Finally, if I don't even have a garage or a driveway and I have to leave my Bonneville on the street, the premium then jumps to £146 a year. So the difference is only £50 a year from putting my Bonneville in a garage to parking it on the street in London. I found that eye-openingly staggering that I only have to pay an extra £50 a year for that. It shows, I guess, that the Triumph, the Bonneville, doesn't really get stolen that much. And the value is, in reality, so low that it doesn't matter too much. I put the value as £2,800. I found that phenomenal, actually. So then I thought, so what is the issue here? What is JK3 having trouble with? And then I noticed he wrote a specific word here. We'll struggle to get insurance on a decent bike. So I thought, okay, let's put a decent bike on here. Let's put a 2016 959 Ducati Panigale on here. Now this will be an appealing bike for the thieves, surely. So I put that I live in the exact same spot as my Bonneville. In a garage is where I'll lock this Panigale. And how much will that cost me a year? Instead of £93 for the Bonneville, the Panigale will cost me £867 a year. Okay. What if I don't have a garage and I decide to leave it on my driveway? I click again to do the pricing. Uninsurable. There isn't one insurance company that will insure my 959 Panigale in the driveway or on the street. An uninsurable bike unless you have a garage. You've got to be very careful if you live in a big dangerous city what kind of bike you buy. You must check if it's insurable before you do anything because I didn't realize there'd be such a disparity, such a polarizing element to the model of bike you buy. I move on to India. Lightweights rule. Freddy, I write to you from India. Here's the bike as I discuss it. Sunday morning, there's a cold bite and an ominous weight to the air. I put my coat on and get on to my 125cc Suzuki scooter to go and meet some friends. A coffee and some breakfast it will be, I imagine. My friends have other ideas. Suddenly we're heading out to a dam outside of the city. Only they're in a big 4x4 and I'm on my scooter. After about 20 minutes on the road, it rains and the loose country lanes turn into a legitimate off-road course. Sticky mud, uneven crests and troughs mined with rocks and suspension-breaking potholes filled with water deep enough to swallow my entire wheel. I must endure this for an hour or so until we get to the dam. And then I must do it all over again on the way back. As we stray further out of the city, plains turn into rolling hills with grassy tracks draped over them like spaghetti. I tell you what, Aidan. You could be a poet. I continue. I'm taking in the atmosphere when I realise that I'm not thinking about the scooter at all. It has hopped, skipped and jumped over everything. The rain-soaked countryside, or it's hopped, skipped and jumped over everything. The rain-soaked 
countryside has to throw at it. I haven't even been precious with it, and it hasn't given me anything to worry about. On the way, we passed a KTM 390 Adventure and a Himalayan stuck in some mud. I know you like the Enfields, but I hope you'll forgive me for pulling a smug smile from under my helmet. Now, I'm a vehicle designer myself. Our kind always aspires to make things bigger and faster and more complicated, often at the expense of the overall ownership experience. That's partly why cars and motorcycles have grown to be so maddeningly sophisticated. But this trip on my cheap and cheerful scooter forces me to ask, is the sophistication really worth it? My scooter does just fine without it. It has boggled my mind and my respect for cut price or for the cut price commuter has only grown. And here's the icing on the cake. It cost me just £600 when it was new in 2017. A service every six months is £8. Changing a tyre, about £30 in this little trip, £2 in fuel. I don't know what the lesson I should take from this is, so I just leave it there. But if nothing else, it's a good story to tell by the campfire. Adyan, India. Adyan. You know, I've seen a couple of videos recently. I'll post one on here as I talk. This is on Instagram, I saw this. And it's of a, a stripped back little bike getting up a ridiculously weddy, weddy, wet, muddy hill. All it's got on are off-road tires. And the key element, it's light. And lightness and good tires trump everything. They trump everything for off-roading. So if you want to go off-roading, all that matters is you've got a light bike with off-road tires and that trumps anything else. Forget about rider modes, forget everything else. Moving on, how the US does bike shows. Greetings, Freddie, from just outside Motor City of Detroit, Michigan, USA. Sending you some photos from a recent event last week called the Baton or the Battle of the Brits. The events held by the Metro Riders, the Metro Triumph Riders, a Detroit area bike enthusiast group. This is a phenomenal outing for two-wheel junkies. The combination swap meet and restoration contest make up the bulk of activities, but even more so is the gala of motorcycles owned by attendees. Nowhere does this type of stuff. Nowhere. This is from Kay Morsey in the US. Like like the US, the events, the quality of the vehicles, the size of the things. Ah, oh, it's brilliant. Some of those bikes, those Nortons, stunning. I move on to Jim from the UK. Cutting one's losses. When is enough enough for a problematic bike? Hi, Fred. After my Goodsey, got written off earlier this year, I decided to buy an older modern classic as my commuter to save a bit of money. Or so I thought. Sadly, the £2,000 Triumph Tiger 900, it's a 1996 carb model that I found has been in the workshop for three months, involving £650 worth of repairs. I got it back and after one day of commuting, 
The brakes will need a service and the fan is not cutting in when in traffic. So the bike's overheating. I always wanted one of these from seeing them back in the day, but now I realize I need to make a decision. Do I keep it and take it, uh, sorry, and take future repair costs on the chin or chop it in for a more reliable bike like the Honda VFR 800? My budget's tight. I'd probably get one and a half, or sorry, I'd probably get 1,500 pounds Partex for the steamer, plus might be able to borrow an additional one to 1,500 pounds. Your thoughts are welcome. Cheers, Jim. Jim, I've been in this situation where I bought a Suzuki Bandit carved model, 2002, and by the end of it, I just got so sick of the unreliability and having to always have problems with the carbs and starting issues that I just decided it, it was worth me taking a loan out to get a bike, a more modern bike. And the bike I went for was a Bonneville, my Bonneville. And it was the best decision I ever made because it was just too unreliable, that old Suzuki. I now have a rule. If I'm going to buy a bike that's my main bike that I need as a mode of transport, I really need it to be 2008 model or, or, or newer, sorry, I was about to say younger. So you looking at a VFR 800 is a good shout, but I would be fairly strict. And if you're looking at a more reliable bike, stick with something from about 2008 onwards. I didn't save it to my laptop, so I can't read the exact specs of this, but I found I found it hard to find a VFR 800 from 2008 onwards for about a grand and a half, but I did find a Honda CBF 1000 for about 1,900 pounds, 20 or 2009 model bike, 53,000 miles on, if my memory serves me correctly. And these are meant to be completely bulletproof bikes. Don't let the engine size put you off too much. I think these will be very cheap to insure and run in general. There's something else I'd say. I would say, Jim, you're looking for a, a cheaper bike. I would say if you can, don't borrow too much on top of that. Maybe an extra 500 pounds, but I would say keep the price that you're looking to pay to about 2,000 pounds because overstretching, if you are looking for a cheaper bike, if you end up overstretching, it may take away from some of that enjoyment. So keep it below two grand, but look at a CBF thousand, one of those under two grand for a 12, 13 year old model. And I think that will do you very well. Now onto bike of the week. This comes from Kay Morsey, who's the gentleman from the US who went to that recent bike show. I saved this little bit of his email for the end because this amazed me that this little bike can still be purchased new. I begin, Kay Morsey, USA. Freddie, I'm the proud owner of a 2012 Suzuki DR650 with 16,000 miles on it and it's still running strong. As you probably know, this bike's agricultural, dare I say, utilitarian design has gone basically unchanged since 1996. Part of the attraction, for me, is the simplicity of the mechanical design. 
You will read similar comments in all of the dual sport forums. There is a certain elegance to how this bike is put together that invites even the mechanically challenged to feel less intimidated about performing basic service and repairs. Successfully working on your own bike leads to better reliability, brand loyalty and ultimately a stronger bottom line for the manufacturer. I hope some of these mainstream brands pay attention. K. Morsi, USA. Now I wasn't familiar with the DR650. I then typed in DR650 and what came up was Suzuki's, this surprised me, Suzuki's USA website and up pops brand new, still for sale for six thousand nine hundred ninety five or six thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars US. That's five thousand six hundred pounds sterling for a brand new Suzuki that looks like it should have been discontinued about 12 years ago. And I say that actually in the most positive possible way. It looks brilliant and it genuinely looks like it hasn't changed the design for 20 years or so. This would sell in Europe. It's a brilliant looking bike. You get a dual sport bike that's got a 650cc engine, as simple and as basic as you could possibly imagine. In fact, it even says, is that true? It's a carburetted bike, air-cooled. Carburetted bike still being sold right now for £5,600 sterling. It's almost worth buying a brand new one, and if you like it enough, taking it over to your country of choice if you're happy to pay the customs duty. If you're looking for one used in the US, you can pick one up for about $4,500, which I believe equates to around about £3,700 sterling. That is quite a tempting little buy. If you fancy one in the UK, you can also find a selection of them from the 90s or so for, depending on price, about six to seven thousand pounds, which shows how well they hold the value because it's actually cheaper to buy a brand new one in the US as it is to buy a 20 to 30 year old model. Never knew they existed. Thank you for that. And I'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. Please do carry on to share all of your thoughts and stories. Have a fantastic week, all.